Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special Mother's Day edition of the Small Business Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moran, and today I want to welcome Grace Davy Moran to the show. She is my mother. Hello, Mom. Hello, Brian. <laughs> So is this like one of the worst days of your life where I'm actually in control of the conversation? <laughs> I am not anticipating this with much glee, I'll say that. <laughs> Mom, I have dreamed about this moment for many, many, many years. So remember all those ends that I got in self-control? Well, let's see if I can improve them with this with this podcast. Um. Actually, Mom, I wanted to do a podcast with you uh, because I think you have some great uh, uh, pieces of advice and wisdom that you can share with a lot of our listeners who are men and women, business owners and and professionals. Well, I hope so. (laughs) All right. So here's how it's going to go. So we're going to we're going to do the podcast in three segments. I want to talk a little bit about your background, kind of set the stage. I want to talk a little bit about your charitable work. Uh, and then we're going to kind of pivot into lessons learned and lessons shared over the years. All right. Right. All right. So you are you are the oldest of eight children. You have there were five boys and three girls. That's right. And I and I know your siblings. So the question is, as the leader of that pack, how did your upbringing shape your life and your professional career? Well, I guess. As the oldest child, everything I've ever read about the your place in a family kind of determines your personality uh, seems to have been true. <laughs> All right. It was probably the most uh, responsible of my siblings. Do you think Jimmy would agree with that? And maybe Dennis? <laughs> competitive for the most responsible. <laughs> Okay. You met dad at 19 when, when you were in college. You got married at 21 and graduated from Fordham. You then went on to have seven children, six boys and a girl. My memories of childhood, at least some of them, were you being president of the Parent Teachers Association, working on local elections, and of course, volunteering your army unit of children on food and clothing drives. So the question I always had is, when did you find time to sleep? <laughs> Uh, August? I don't know that it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it just seemed to be the things that one did. I, I couldn't send uh, seven children to school and not be involved in the PTA. Right, uh, right, right. Some obligation to contribute. So I did. So, so were most other mothers in similar situations? I would think so. Yes. Yeah. I, I think they, uh, they, that was an era when large families was not unusual. Right. Especially in our town. Came from large families. Right. Right. Um, I would agree with that. I thought that was the norm. I thought every family had six, seven, 10 children. Well, in this town, (laughs) did Did anybody check the water tables and and see if there was something in the water? Okay. So when you, when, when, when Colin, who's your youngest, was, I think he was a three or four years old, you decided to go to law school and you right. were probably about 33, 34 years old. Was this more of a calling or was it just an excuse for you to get out of the house? 
I joke that if you fail at one thing, you try another. <laughs> but uh, actually, when I graduated from Fordham, it would have been very difficult to go to law school because you really only had one or two women in a, in a law school class. Mm -hmm. By 1975, when I decided to go, uh, I think my class was at least 8% women. Uh, but I was 37 years old when I started law school. I'm, I'm blaming Mark. I asked him to do some research for me on this, and this is what he gave to me. So, okay, so you, you, you go to law school and you did well in law school. You were invited to law review second year. You, cho you chose to turn it down because it just meant additional hours, which you didn't have. That's correct. After school, you did some work in dad's law firm, but then you joined the 10th, the 10th Appellate Division Grievance Committee. What made you choose public service? I thought it would be interesting uh, when this uh, when this opportunity arose and I learned about it. It's it, it was the professional discipline of the legal profession. That's mm -hmm. so I was something of a prosecutor for attorneys gone bad. But it was uh, it was very interesting work. Uh, and, and I enjoyed it. I, when I took the job, I thought I'd be there maybe two or three years. And I ended up spending over 20 years there because it was very interesting work. Now, now this, is, this is where we get into the good part, because I know you're, you're humble and, and you hate talking about yourself. So let me talk about you just for two minutes. You, you eventually became the first woman to become chief counsel of the Grievance Committee, which oversees Long Island. You also became the first woman president of the Nassau County Bar Association in 1994. And that was the, the bar was started in 1899. So it was 95 years before they had a woman president. Um, and, and lastly, you were the 77th recipient of the Distinguished Service Medallion, which is the highest honor given by the Nassau County Bar Association. Now, I want to just read because I went and I looked at who some of the past recipients were of this this uh, medallion. And there were 76 people before you, including Herbert Hoover, Dwight Eisenhower, Nelson Rockefeller, Thurgood Marshall, Antonin Scalia, and then a, a number of women. You were the fifth woman to receive it. But um, two people that I know you, I think, hold in high regard, Beatrice Burstein and Marie Santagata. What, what did it mean to be part of that group of people who were recognized for their lifelong service? Well, I was quite surprised when I got the phone call telling me that I had been selected by the committee for the award. But then I looked up the past recipients, Eisenhower and, you know, Thurgood Marshall and the others. And I said, oh, I belong in that group. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. Why not? Actually, it was a, that was terrifying. The, the idea that that I would be selected for, for that. I, I knew it would be. Uh, I just did not feel that I was a worthy recipient. But there were a lot of you, there were a lot of glass ceiling moments in your career. Uh, like I mentioned, first woman president of the bar, first woman to head up the 10th appellate uh, division. Did you recognize them as glass ceiling moments at the time? Or was that just part of your what your like expected career path was? No, uh, I, I did not have a uh, a goal. 
I simply got up each day and tried to do my best and mm-hmm. see where it led or what happened. But uh, I did see it as a, a glass ceiling moment. Yes. Becoming the first woman president. I knew that um, as long as I did a decent job, there would be several women coming after me. And indeed there were. Right. But I think the, the silver medallion was recognition for the work that you did. Um, and, and I think you, you underplay the impact that you had in the legal profession. I know that you spoke significantly uh, around the country and around New York State about professional ethics and conduct uh, to try and keep the standards of the legal profession as high as they possibly could. Yeah, I did. Well, that was part of the job was was uh, lecturing uh, to bar associations and community groups and things like that. Uh, so I did that. But just about uh, everybody I worked with had to take on that kind of public education. OK, um, I want to pivot now to a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about charitable work and then we'll get into the lessons learned. So I referred earlier to you uh, volunteering your army unit of children. I remember going, it was like every Saturday, it would be funny every Saturday, right? Okay. Get in the car and you would, you would hustle six or seven kids into the car. Okay. Where are we going today? And then I remember that one, there was one house where there was literally a mountain of clothes and you said, okay, we need to parcel this up, put them in bags and ship them off somewhere. Like, my, you know, I got a baseball game at 11 o'clock. You'll make it. Start working. And then, uh, uh, I mean, but there were so many times like that. What? There weren't that many times. It wasn't every Saturday. You might have done it a dozen times. <laughs> there what? were trucks that came. There was a woman who collected clothes for Appalachia. Right. And she she was older and she couldn't possibly load these trucks by herself. And I had these six boys that were quite capable of moving the clothes into cartons and putting mm. them on the truck. So I volunteered you. <laughs> and then, of course, every winter when it snowed, you know, five, six, ten inches, we would go out and all my friends and uh, my, my brother's friends would all go out and they would make five, ten, even twenty dollars for a driveway. And you would line us up at eight o'clock in the morning. Okay, you have to do this house. You have to do this house. You have to do this house and absolutely do not take any money from them. Well, that was the older people on our block who possibly go out and shovel their own walk and driveways. So and and what I think is is good is that now people on this block are having their children come and shovel my walk. And my. All right. All right. Well, well. The, the, you know, there's other charitable work you did, which I want to recognize. Just I, I remember things like, well, you sat on the, uh, the board of two hospitals. You uh, have the school in Freeport that you work with. Right. And, and you, you've driven when I was younger, remember you driving for cerebral palsy. Right. Right. So I, I guess the question I have is given your workload between work and, and personal life, 
why was the charitable aspect such an important part of your life's foundation? I mean, no one would have accused you of slacking if you said, you know, I don't have the time to do this or that, whether it was the PTA or volunteering your kids or or doing this other work for the schools, the hospitals, cerebral palsy. I think we all have to contribute something for the space we're taking up on this planet. Mm -hmm. I had, I don't know how I had the time, but I did have the time. Uh, and they were, people would call and say they needed a volunteer for this or that. And I would try to do it. I would contribute my share. Was that part of your DNA? Is that something you learned from your parents? Where, I mean, did that, or did you just figure it was a good excuse to get your kids out of the house? <laughs> I didn't think of it at the time as uh, being anything extraordinary. It was, it was just, and I don't think I was alone. I, I think that I knew the, the, the women that I hung out with, so to speak, <clears throat> Well, usually women who worked, they were not ladies who lunched and they would be involved in various charitable or community activities. And I just kind of followed along. Or led. It was the way things were. That was right. Right. OK, I, I want to now talk about lessons learned. So the, the, the lessons learned and the lessons that you shared over the years, I know that many women Many women and men attorneys sought your advice over the years on how to be better attorneys or even better leaders. Do you remember any of the nuggets of wisdom that you shared with them? I remember um, putting into my lecture something I learned from from my job, and that was that um, probably the most dangerous clients an attorney could have would be a relative or a long term friend because then they would kind of relax the professional distancing that and I think an attorney has to do. And uh, they wouldn't put everything into writing. They wouldn't, they would take, uh, they would treat it as a friendship or right. as, uh, you know, as somebody that they were concerned about and uh, overly concerned about perhaps. And as a result, if something went bad and the relative or the long-term friend turned on them, they were just devastated. Uh, I, I mean, and they didn't have the necessary writings. And the, in other words, they didn't act as an, a hundred percent as an attorney. They were acting as 40% attorney and the rest of it was friendship or, or love for a sibling. And, uh, Invariably, the attorney was in serious trouble. Yeah. Do you think the same applies for Long Island contractors? <laughs> You're joking about your brother? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, poor, poor Colin. I, I, he became uh, the Mr. Fix-It for the entire family. He can fix yeah. anything. He. Yeah. He's a, a mechanic. He's a contractor. He, he can. He took computers for a couple of years. There's nothing he can't fix. Right. He is our plow horse. The whole family knows it. <laughs> he is our plow horse. 
He is. I, you know, the biggest regret I have uh, from moving from Long Island to New Jersey is that Colin has this aversion to crossing the George Washington Bridge. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I still it, it's I tell him it's not, you know, two planes and a train to get to my house. You can get here in under an hour. But he's, he seems to have his workload uh, filled with uh, just his siblings uh, on Long Island. Um, OK, so recently. The pand- Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. Um, I did a podcast before this one about the pandemic's effect on women in the workforce, and it's been almost devastating. Um, about five million women have left the workforce. And, and in fact, we're at numbers now that we haven't seen since 1988. Um, and a number of the women who, who left the workforce said it was just simply impossible to do everything that needed to be done, meaning that they were working from home, their spouses were working from home and their children were home from school, you know, homeschooled on Zoom. And so it just it made it almost impossible to to do everything, you know, successfully. And so they, they chose they chose to give up their job and focus on their families for now. Others were burnt out, too. Um, what advice would you give to those women who left the workforce because they, they chose the family over their career? You know, I don't know I'm the best person to do this because when uh, you, you and your siblings were young, uh, you know, not in school or in grade school, uh, there was most families had only one breadwinner. Mm-hmm. We didn't, quote, have to work, you know. Uh, right. Nowadays, most families need two breadwinners. So mm-hmm. this is a very difficult situation for, for these women. But the fact of the matter is, I, I don't think from observing my grandchildren, the ones that were in the public schools, as opposed the private schools seem to have opened and they had in-person for most, for the most part, uh, teaching, but those Zoom classrooms didn't, to me, didn't seem to work that well. And in fact, in our family, the the grandchildren who were uh, re- working remotely in school uh, just were going nowhere. I mean, they didn't seem to be uh, learning very much at all, and consequently. Uh, Someone in the family, I think it was your sister, um, organized a tutoring yeah. session for with with especially with the college students, the the ones that were very good in math and science taught that the ones who were good in English, you know, taught uh, taught grammar, and then they they selected books for them to read. So in effect, uh, for the better part of a year. Um, the, the grandchildren had um, special tutoring from, right. you know, from, from college students who were good at it. Uh, if, you, if you didn't have that kind of family support, I think that a mother uh, trying to work remotely and trying to, you know, help her children who were working uh, remotely, this it would have been three full time jobs. Right. It, this would have been impossible. I, also, there were the 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 uh, 
women who, for instance, nursing or being a policewoman or that those jobs can't be done remotely. Right. So how you cannot leave, you know, young children, preteens home alone. Uh, that that is uh, irresponsible. Right. So a lot of them uh, had no choice. I mean, it became the husband and wife would have to sit down and figure out whose job was going to be pursued and the other one was not going to work. Right. The only way to work it out. Right. And then there are there are these single mothers who have two, three, four children and who are trying to balance that as well. And I think I always said that I think the government needs to recognize them in, independently and um, provide some sort of assistance to them, at least for like a bridge between now and, and when things start to reopen. Well, I think at this point, the, uh, the pandemic is virtually over. So that in the United States open up in the fall. Right. And, and, and things will get back to something similar to normal life. Uh, but but it's it's been uh, it's just been a very, very difficult, almost impossible situation for, as you say, the single mothers. Right. Right. Um, you know, just a side note, too, because I get asked about this a lot. You know, I, I uh, often speak about uh, people in underrepresented communities and minority business owners and the people who, uh, uh, you know, are looking for equality and, and equity and diversity and inclusion. And I often will support those efforts. And they say, well, where did all of this come from? I said, well, you know, in my house, there were nine people. There were there were seven men and two women. And I saw that, you know, I saw in my own house the the inequality. And I said, you know, the seven men often had to fight just to get a voice with management. <laughs> the, the two women who ran our household were, you know, were dictators. It was very, very difficult. I, I said, to, said to someone, uh, I, I think Siobhan, your, your sister, Siobhan, has become the strong woman she is and the incredibly good attorney, from my observation. She owes to her brothers. <laughs> she does. And she tells me that every day, by the way. I love Siobhan. I love your emails. Keep them coming. <laughs> they, uh, the boys really toughened her up. No doubt. No doubt. She was very soft growing up. For those of you who don't know my sister uh, and, and it took years of molding and and, you know, counseling and good advice. But she really came around. Well, I remember one time we after dinner, I said something about, all right, I want you to clear the table or something. And uh, ja Jamie said, uh, that's women's work. Well, that's a girl's job. And Siobhan announced, and we don't have enough girls. Get up. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of daughters, granddaughters, you have 13 granddaughters uh, who all seem to be ambitious, bright, hardworking. What are some of the things that you're telling them? I know they, they look up to you. They revere you. They they joke around with you. But, you know, I've asked my kids often, you know, what what is, you know, what did you talk to Nana about today? And they will tell me these insightful things about work and about life. So what, what are you telling them right now about their futures? You know, I remember something my great grandmother who, who lived till I was 19 years old. 
I remember something she said to me once. She had been born in Ireland. She came to this country in 1861 or two. I said, you know, there was such oppression and there was such famine and the, 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 the occupation by Britain was so horrible for them. I said, why didn't you ever speak about that? And she said, there is no glory in being a victim. <laughs> wow. She felt, she felt that that was an embarrassment, that uh, there should have been a, a revolution much sooner than it occurred. But then when I started reading Irish history, I realized they, there was a revolution. I mean, there was a rebellion every 20 or 25 years there. Right. And but but that was something I thought uh, I, I, I've just kept that to myself all my life, that don't whine, do something about it, but don't whine. Right, right. I think that's something that, that, uh, that I hope the grandchildren, the granddaughters in particular, have learned that. Uh, but the other part is that in your early years, and, and this I've heard Siobhan talking to people about this, in your early years when you're you're out of college and you're, uh, deciding what you're going to do with your life, that is the time to put in the foundation. Uh, you know, I heard Siobhan yelling one time at, at one of her cousins that uh, who was complaining that she was working 60 hours a week or something at her career. And she, she said, you're 22 years old. That's when you do that. You know? Right, right. So if, you're going to, if you're going to build a foundation, do it in your early 20s when you have the energy and maybe not any other responsibilities. That's great advice. Do you give the grant? You have nine grandsons, too. So you have a total of 22 grandchildren. Are you telling them the same things? Are you telling them anything different? No, I think it's pretty much the same. If, yeah. Depending on it. Does, I don't mean that you have to have a career. You know, there may be people who just want a job. You know, right. uh, the, so that's fine. You know, find out what it is that works best for you uh, and and then pursue it. And but if you're going to pursue it, don't party time should not be your early 20s. That should be when you're really building, as I say, a foundation. Right. Right. All right. We're in the home stretch, mom, of our podcast. And I'm going to put you on the hot seat with five questions. All right. And I should have said early on that my mother had asked for complete editorial control over this podcast. We have agreed in principle to giving her only partial editorial control. Is that right? No, I thought I had full. <laughs> no, no. OK, so five questions real quick. Uh, what's the secret to life? What's the secret to a happy life? Don't pursue happiness. Pursue doing your part, you're making your contributions, happiness will follow. But happiness is not something, a goal. Okay, I love that. Uh, best advice you ever received from your parents? <laughs> I, I, I guess it was my father who, um, I, I used to joke that the reason I, I am so complicated is because my mother always worried about what the neighbors would think and my father barely knew we had any. <laughs> <laughs> he was a man who, who, an engineer who pursued 
what he thought was best and was not uh, not deterred by what other people's opinion were. Yes. And and I don't understand. I I found, too, that as I grew older, uh, I only my the only opinions I respect are from people I respect. Right. Right. There's you hear a lot of things of uh, like, for instance, news today is it seems you turn on the television, you're getting somebody's opinion. Right. These people. How can I respect them? I don't know if they know what they're talking about. Right. We long for the days of Tim Russert and Walter Cronkite and Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill and Mike Royko. Right. People who uh, who you respected, you read their columns and you thought, hey, this is good stuff. Right. Absolutely. Uh, By the way, I still hear when I think about Mary and Pop, my grandparents, my mother's parents, Pop was probably one of the funniest people I ever met. And I don't think he intended to be funny. That was the best part about him. But Mary, I, I, some of the things, oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, the neighbors are going to think we're all crazy. All right. Best advice you ever gave to your kids? Keep your head down and your mouth. <laughs> well, that was for me. That was for me. But I, I, I think I think that wouldn't have gone too well with Matthew because that's all he ever did. <laughs> No, that's true. You were the one I told when you started uh, Shamanat. I said, all right, good. You can get in there. You keep your head down and your mouth shut. Right. You, I, you, you, you had your master's in reverse psychology with me. <laughs> that goes without saying. I will say this. The best advice you ever gave me was the only security you will ever need in life is between your ears. That's true. That, that's and then true. I went to the bank and they asked me for security. And I went, hold on one second. And I started unscrewing my head. I said, it's in there somewhere. Yeah, that that is. I forgot about that. Yeah, that that has actually helped me quite a bit in life, because you realize you also realize that things are temporary. The, the mountaintop moments don't last, but neither do the valleys. This is true. Yeah. Um, your proudest accomplishment in life. I think uh, it's definitely raising the kids, uh, all of whom uh, turned out to be responsible adults. Uh, I, I, that is, if that had gone bad, uh, then nothing else would have mattered. That's true. All right. And the last question, is it true that I'm really your favorite child? <laughs> I'm kidding. I know I'm your favorite, but we don't have to tell anybody. Brian, favorite is a, is a tough uh, decision. <laughs> but you were definitely the most worrisome. <laughs> but you were the big risk taker. Like the time uh, the good human man was selling the ice cream out of the back of the truck, but he left the tree, the key in the ignition. Yes. The next thing he knew, you were five years old. You were in the truck and driving it down the block. And he was racing after you. <laughs> and he so, caught me before I hit the wall. When you got older, you got uh, you built that evil Knievel ramp. Yeah. And then you bike up it to jump over three or four garbage cans. That didn't turn out so well. So, Mom, my, my <laughs> listeners know none of this. Hmm? They think I'm a responsible adult. You were responsible for them dismantling the monkey bars at the school. Oh, know. when I fell off. Yeah, but you fell off. Yes. Uh, because the other kids would only go to the second or third rung. You had to go all the way to the top. Right. Uh, so, I mean, you were the big risk taker. 
right um, and then that that truly the most worrisome child and and the, the, the doctors would say to me no he's well within the range of normal he and i would say fine then tranquilize me <laughs> All right. So this is so this is not we're not going to turn this in. When you get your own podcast, you can interview me and we can talk about all of the things. You know, mom, I I think I give I I should take a lot of credit for your success because I really did keep you on your toes. I mean, when when you had those lawyers come before you, they were nothing compared to what you were dealing with at home. Correct. This is true. This is true. Right. And Siobhan, the same thing. She owes me a lot of credit. But she again, she thanks me profusely on a weekly basis. So I appreciate that. Siobhan, you don't have to send any more of those emails. Thank you for them, though. I I appreciate all the love. All right, Mom, this is great. So this is going to be our Mother's Day Small Business Edge podcast. I want to thank you for being a great mom. Yeah, you know, you uh, you did you did a hell of a job. Uh, and, and it's funny, you know, you, we see it, we see all of the day, we saw all the day to day stuff growing up and, and what it took to get us dressed and to church every Sunday or to our swimming lessons, uh, you know, during the week when we were kids. And I just assumed that that was every family. And then you go out into the world and you realize, no, that woman is pretty incredible. Where did she hang up her superwoman cape? So uh, thank you for everything. And thank you for keeping me alive for the first 18 years of my life. Well, I used to say, if I keep them alive and out of jail till they're 21, I'm a success. (laughs) And not one of us ever spent a night behind bars. This is true. Convicted? Never. (laughs) All right. I want to I want to wish all of the other moms out there listening. I want to wish you all a happy Mother's Day and all the best as we continue to reopen the country and get our lives uh, back into full swing and uh, everything that that goes with it. Again, mom, any final words before we say goodbye? No, thank you, Brian. You're welcome, mom. This was fun. Let's do it again. Maybe next Mother's Day. (laughs) Maybe we can edit this down to about five minutes. That that can happen. I promise you, I know already some people who are going to say, you got to have your mom back on as a regular. Right. I think so. We could do this. All right, Mom. I'll see you. I'll see you uh, maybe tomorrow. And uh, I, I wish everybody um, happy Mother's Day to the to the women out there, and uh, to all our listeners and viewers. Thank you again for your comments, your suggestions, and your feedback. We appreciate that. So keep them coming, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.